As you take your seats, please turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5, picking up where we left off at verse 13. If you remember from last week, Paul has been lamenting the state of the Galatian church. In verse 7, he says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Of course, uh, in this section, Paul is lamenting and is getting pretty worked up, and by the time he gets to verse 12, he famously or infamously says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves, that even the circumcision party might go all the way and become the castration party, that they would indeed cease from the land. Of course, Paul has been, we might say, worked up the whole of the book so far. Each part of this letter, building on the previous part, this argument that builds for the doctrine of justification by faith alone, apart from works. It's a gospel uh, of grace alone and faith alone and Christ alone. And as we come to this section, just after Paul has turned to lament the state, it's as if he begins to pick up his argument and, and really his instruction again to the Galatian churches in verse 13. So we'll read there, and I thought we'd get through maybe to the end of chapter 5, but I think we'll only get as far as verse 14 this evening. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Dr. Timothy Keller, the founder of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan, New York City, famous apologist and preacher, uses what I found to be the most helpful illustration introducing this section of text. He mentions the way he noticed his son's grades in school dipping you know, they had been, in the earlier part of the year, you know, late to bed, early to rise, working on their readings and papers and projects. Uh, but this semester, the grades coming back significantly lower. They seem to lack the zeal they once had for their academic work. And when he asked them why, they explained, Ah, oh, Dad, the colleges don't see this. As in all the transcripts had already been turned in, they had already been accepted to their school of choice, and, you know, the, the end of their senior year didn't really matter how much work they put in. They had secured their future. And that is essentially, I think, in some ways, the same problem Paul is addressing at the end of Galatians 5. What Paul has been saying is that in the gospel, if you trust Christ, if you follow Him, you, you get a passing grade. More than a passing grade, you get a, a perfect score, an A-plus forever in the scorebook of God, your, your college of choice, your future destination secured. You've gotten in. Things are settled as you're justified by faith alone, not by works. This is, of course, the scandal. It's the stumbling block. It's what's mentioned as the offense of the cross in verse 11, as we saw last time, that those who stayed up late studying, burning the candle at both ends, and those who didn't study at all, both received the same grade. Both 
end up in the same honors program. The idea of it being by grace alone is a frustratingly offensive concept on first blush. Both those with the good grades and the bad grades of life end in the same place, as it were, according to what Paul is saying, apparently. And of course, this is a, this is a problem Paul's opponents would be pointing out to him. They would be asking the question, okay, well, if you ace by simple faith, faith alone, not by works, lest any man should boast, why work? Why would you work to produce good works? Why would you work to serve the church? Why, why do anything? And indeed, I think this is what Paul is picking up implicitly as he, as he begins to ask this question in verse 13. And I do think it's a question there when he says, you were called to freedom, brothers. He's, he's, he's circling back to address a lingering question that is in their minds. And I think it's the question of why work? You know, there's a certain kind of freedom they've been called to, but there's often confusion about freedom. A few weeks ago, we discussed the nature of this freedom. And of course, in the larger context of the Bible is the great freedom from sin, the devil, and death. But here Paul more specifically has in mind a freedom from the law as ladder. Freedom from the law is a way of accumulating gold stars, of building a spiritual resume by which we might commend ourselves unto God, earn from Him the things we want. It's a freedom from trying to do enough good things to outweigh the bad things. And the anxiety of the looming judgment, or the, the final at the end of the semester, it's not only as if it's been canceled as in it's not going to happen, but it's been fulfilled and that uh, the test has been taken for us. Christ the righteous has fulfilled the requirements for us. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, perfect life, sinless, worthy righteousness, credit to my account. We have gone from being in debt a trillion dollars to being of surplus of righteousness a trillion dollars. So that, hey, you're set for life and for eternity. You have rest and comfort and joy. You're, you're ready to retire to Cancun and sip pina coladas on the beach. See, this is the problem that Paul is seeking to cut off. Paul's opponents pointing out, indeed, Paul confirms the problem in 13b. He says, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. In other words, yes, self-indulgence on the beach with the umbrella drinks is not a godly lifestyle. And it's very tempting for some believers to uh, perhaps avoid legalism on one hand, only to fall into license on the other hand. To avoid law as ladder, justification by works, to not fall off on the one side of the horse, but to fall off on the other side of the horse into antinomianism, cheap grace, uh, kind of belief that sin doesn't matter, that God grades on the curve. He's, he doesn't take it that seriously. Cheap grace on the other. In other words, it's wrong to think that even though you, you've gotten an A plus in the teacher's grade book or the college has accepted you, that you don't have to work anymore. That you don't have to live with ambition, drive, to grow in righteousness, to, to come more and more in the likeness of Christ. Well, why? Why? And as Paul begins to answer, he, I do think in verse 13b, he, he first confronts false freedom. That's the first thing we'll see. He can, confronts false freedom and I think implicitly commends a, a true freedom, which he, he will call the law of love. So in answering this question of why to keep working, of how to avoid license, antinomianism, cheap grace, he begins to commend a larger picture of 
following Christ, the following God. It's a denunciation of false freedom, a vision of true freedom that is seen in the law of love. That will be our general outline as we work through these verses. He begins by warning us against false freedom. Called to freedom, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. And that was no doubt the most common way then and the most common way now to think about freedom as an opportunity for indulgence. My mother tells the story of her leaving her her son, myself, in the kitchen as a little boy to go uh, out to pick uh, garden uh, vegetables from the garden or some such thing, and coming back only to find that the kitchen door had been locked and to look in the window and see her son sitting on the table with butter in one hand and sugar in the other, indulging the flesh, as it were. And indeed, the false, shallow, secular freedom to indulgence uh, from, the, from the earliest days of life, falls flat on its face. Any child who's been set free to indulge the flesh knows the, the, uh, not the freedom, but rather the bondage and sickness that comes from indulgence. One needs to only look to the Weight Watchers meeting, or the Alcoholic Anonymous meeting, or the Narcotic Anonymous, or to ask young men struggling with pornography why he can't just quit. To know that, indeed, to indulge the flesh is no true freedom, but is indeed a whole different kind of bondage. It's true in Paul's day, and it's true in our own. 1965, the Rolling Stones made it a hippie anthem, still plays in the background of television commercials all my life. I'm free to do what I want any old time. I'm free to do what I want any old time, so love me hold me, love me, hold me, I'm free any old time to get what I want. And it basically repeats three times, and that's the whole of the song, really. It's, it's, it's no more profound. And the song itself, I think, is, is a nice illustration of, of how simple and shallow such an idea of freedom as an indulgence truly is. But the false freedom Paul warns of here is but to see not only marked by a foolish indulgence, a false freedom of indulgence, but also a false freedom of independence. Independence. What Beyonce in Destiny's Child sings about all the women who independent throw your hands up at me might feel like an empowering idea in the moment. But where that ultimately leads is uh, dreadful loneliness, alienation, isolation, the anxiety that follows. See, this freedom of independence, this value of personal autonomy. This is really the driving force behind the abortion movement of our day. Because to, of course, outlaw abortion would be to allow external constraints to infringe upon a woman's personal autonomy, her freedom. That is what the left, of course, thinks is so unthinkable. Of course, they have to lie about the nature of the little life in the womb, the, the simplistic ethic of do what you want as long as you don't hurt other people is a road that leads to nowhere. Indeed, the quote-unquote free love ethic of the sexual revolution of the 1960s well, still has some seeming cultural, social assumed authorities, is already defeating itself on its own terms, crumbling under the, the weight of its own claims to liberate women. Of course, that, that, that was the claim, right? That women needed to be freed to be able to be as men, as promiscuous as men, uh, which, of course, was made possible by the pill, championed under the popular culture, 
even as the Stones song illustrates. In a piece in the last two weeks from um, National Review, A.C. Gleason explains so well what is happening even in our popular culture as it bears witness to the, the freedom of personal autonomy, of independence as it crumbles in our own day. He says, pop culture has come full circle now. So it shows as popular and envelope-pushing as HBO's Girls or Euphoria that demonstrate with disturbing clarity to the point where these shows feel like conservative propaganda. They illustrate the life of a modern liberated woman is one of complete alienation from community, love, and actual eros. Because this is the thing about elevating personal autonomy. It demands independence, not relationship. It promotes selfishness, not selflessness or love. It, it inevitably isolates. Indeed, the compelling thing in these shows, in the popular culture mind, I think the actual energy behind the hashtag MeToo movement is that the reality on the ground, that the sexual revolution has been a catastrophe for women, instead of bringing any kind of real liberation, has only brought a different kind of bondage. This is the thesis, of course, of Louisa Perry's popular book, a feminist herself, quote, the case against the sexual revolution. It's all a great lie of our age that freedom is a freedom to indulge and a freedom to independence or, or kind of lack of constraints. When, when Pumbaa and Timon and Simba are, are living in the jungle, no rules, no responsibilities, no worries, Akuna Matata, it works for a while. Perhaps uh, living in indulgence and independence might work for a while until life comes, until evil raises this ugly head, until responsibility or love shows up. No, indeed, indulgence of the night out, independence from responsibility always in, ends in the hangover, the regret, if not far worse. You see, false freedom, as Paul points to here, is a freedom from, it's independence, a personal autonomy, throwing off of all constraints. It's, it's the illustration of, of the fish who has the idea that it wants to be where the people are, up where they walk, up where they run, up where they play all day in the sun. But a fish out of water is a dead fish, different kind of bondage, or perhaps the train, the train that it feels so constrained by the tracks, longs to be free of the tracks it must stand all the time. But a train off the tracks is called a train wreck. Such is the life that we live in this life. True freedom, you see, is not a lack of constraints. It's not a freedom to indulge or freedom to personal autonomy or independence, but it is finding the right constraints. And indeed, Paul points to those right constraints. It's, it's as if uh, this larger argument is all packed into one verse. He points to love, but through love serve one another. That's where true freedom lies. There's this false freedom you know of indulgence and independence, but there's a true freedom that's found in love. Verse 13c, through love serve one another. Verse 14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. See, true freedom is found in the right constraints. True freedom is found in doing what you were designed for. And I've used the illustration before, but I'll, I'll use it again. I went online to figure out which dog was the right dog for our family, and I went on Orvis.com, and you can take the test to see, you know, which, which dog fits your family. And I found the dog, the German wire-haired pointer, the griffin, and 
I, I was smitten and taken. I said, this is what I was thinking already. And so I, I found a local breeder, and I called the breeder and explained our family situation. I had a great interview, I felt, with, with the breeder, only to find out that he, he would not sell me the dog because I'm not a hunter. He knows the German wire-haired pointer is a dog bred, a dog designed, a dog that's really set free in happiness, doing what it's meant to be doing when it's hunting. He wouldn't let it come to such bondage where it would be only a kind of family play, jogging dog. No, Paul points to love as the source of true freedom because, number one, love is who you were created by. Number two, love is what you were created for. And thirdly, it's what you were redeemed unto. Who you were created by, what you were created for, who you were redeemed unto. When I say that love is who you were created by, of course, the story of our creation, Genesis 1 to 3, the concept that cannot be missed is that we are made in the image of God, meant to be, uh, of course, not God, but in His image, a special relationship to Him, a, a representation of Him, a reflection of Him, with the plan to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with His image bearers, representations of Him. And how might we summarize what God is like, who He is? And indeed, I think this is what the Apostle John is doing when he says that God is love. Love being the highest virtue, our highest ideal. God is the very definer of it, the very embodiment of it. He is love. And those made in His image are meant from the very beginning. They're created by the God who is love to be those who represent, illustrate, image forth the love of God to one another over all creation, filling the earth with little lovers, little walking representation of Himself to the the ends of the earth. Now, notice how verse 14 says, the whole law is fulfilled in one word, love your neighbor. And of course, that could be a very uh, confusing thing in the sense that we've been spending the last few weeks saying how we've been freed from the law. I hope you've been listening closely, not freed from the law and toto completely. We're freed from the misuse of the law as a ladder to earn our righteousness before God. Although we've been set free from uh, the law as ladder, we are instead, I would say, set free unto the law in its third use or as a, a way forward, as a, the law as it is a reflection of the character of God one of the ways that we might look at the law, even as Dr. Johnson has been preaching from the Ten Commandments. How do we know what God wants, what His revealed will is for us, what His design is for us, what we were made for? I could summarize it as we do every Sunday evening, to love God and to love neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law on the prophets. This is the design, this is the intention, this was who you were created by and what you were created for, the law as summarized, as the way to live, the design for which we've been made. It, of course, was marred in the fall as the image is marred, and yet still there, but renewed, refreshed as we follow Christ in newness of life. So not only have we can look at um, uh, love as Uh, who has created us and what we've been created for, but thirdly, what we have been redeemed unto. Paul points to love as the source of true freedom because it is what you were redeemed unto. Not only is it the design of our creation, but also of our redemption. 
Jesus in John 13, right? Uh, at the Last Supper, as He begins to move towards the cross, He sits with His disciples and tells them, they will know you are My disciples if you love one another. At that same meal, the, the very end of His ministry, the, the, to, to, make, to make the point, to press it upon them, He reiterates in a different way. A new commandment I give to you. As I have loved you, so you are to love one another. And indeed, I I think of the way our our popular culture uh, divinizes uh, this indulgent, independent celebrity, and uh, we know their stories and follow their exploits. And yet I also know, having grown up in the church, um, with illustrations ad nauseum, illustrations that never end of people who live out the law of love, who in humility and never uh, showing up or being appreciated are truly the happiest people I've ever known, contrasted with the celebrity who flails from one incident to another. No, the church, those who follow Jesus Christ. Why why must they work? Why can't they just go to Cancun for the rest of life and not really worry about working out their own salvation for Christ has worked in them? Why can't they just, just uh, sip the umbrella drinks and take it easy? Because they can't. It's because they must. Being set free from sin and given life unto Christ, it's in their very DNA. It's at the core of who made them, what He made them for, and what He set them free unto. To be lovers of one another, through love, serving one another. It's the beginning of Paul's answer, and we'll, we'll come back to this question in the next few weeks as we can, I think he continues to elaborate all that's happened in our justification by faith alone and the way it transformed us. We ought, we ought not to miss this. But not only is there a a revelation of our design and what freedom looks like in following Him in love and being His image bearers in love, but also He's freed us to the ability to love God. In the old way of living, uh, it is before Christ, uh, they, they worked, they kept the law. Why? For myself, to accumulate good works so that I commend myself. I, I, I do the things, I go to church, I do the, the things so that I, I feel okay, so that God accepts me. But once that paradigm has moved on, and there's a new paradigm given, where there's been grace, approval, love, given not based upon your resume and on your own effort, it's the giving of a gift that entails the most natural gratitude and love that would flow from it. I hope you see it every Christmas as you gather with your families and you, you give the small child a gift and they open the gift and they enjoy the present or the thing or they put it on and then inevitably, ordinarily, turn to the person that gave it to them and in thankfulness and gratitude express their thanks. How much more for the God of the universe that has given the approval and the love that has poured out His love upon us the most natural thing to then be lovers of God and lovers of the image bearers of God. The logic is tight within what Paul suggests. The reasons are deep and indeed connect to the whole of the Scriptures. But let me 
Let me end here as we, as we come back week by week and add to the reasons why we cannot stop working. It is who we are to fulfill all righteousness and loving our neighbor as ourself. To contrast the vision here given by Paul of those who are redeemed and are made lovers of God, lovers of our neighbors, even as Jesus says, lovers of our enemies, in contrast to a world that sees us as accidents, coming from nowhere, going to nowhere, only for self-indulgence and independence in our own day. I'm not sure, to me, there's a more helpful contrast, an antithesis, an apologetic, an argument for Christianity than that general framework for life, that there is something you're made for, something that really uh, puts winds in your souls, makes you come alive from the very foundations of your existence in the very nature of God that's worked out in us as we follow Christ. Though the future is secured and the grade is given, the true Christian doesn't give in to false freedom, independence, and indulgence, but rather is set free to true freedom, love, love for God and His image bearers, doing what we are made for and redeemed unto as we pray together. Father in heaven, I, I do pray that we would come alive, that we would be set free to love God and love our neighbor as You have made us, as You have redeemed us to do. Father, I pray that the mind of Christ our Savior would fill us, that we would know the freedom and joy, the true freedom of living in Christ Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.